This evening in your Bibles, we would encourage you to open to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We'll be reading from verses 12 through 17 in your pew Bible. You can find this on page 1,362. After we read from the Scriptures, we'll also be considering Lord's Day 11 of our Heidelberg Catechism. And in your Forms and Prayers book, you can find that on page 212. We read first from the inspired Word of God, and then from the Heidelberg Catechism, which we believe is a faithful summary of the Word of God. This evening, 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17, the Apostle Paul writes as follows, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We turn then to Lord's Day 11, and two questions. First, 29, why is the Son of God called Jesus, meaning Savior? And the answer, because he saves us from our sins, and because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. Question 30 then continues by asking, do those who look for their salvation and security in saints, in themselves or elsewhere, really believe in the only Savior, Jesus? And the answer, no. Although they boast of being his, by their actions they deny the only Savior, Jesus. Either Jesus is not a perfect Savior, or those who in true faith accept this Savior have in him all they need for their salvation. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Christian faith, uh, the Christian church, and the Christian heart must all be focused upon Christ, upon Christ Jesus, upon the Son of God. And our Heidelberg Catechism makes a slight transition from considering the first person of the Trinity, the Father, and the work of creation and providence, and it now makes a slight transition to focusing upon the second person of the Trinity. And in due time, it will shift again its focus to the third person of the Trinity, to the Holy Spirit and the sanctifying work that the Holy Spirit accomplishes. But for now, our focus is centered upon Jesus Christ. In doing so, our Heidelberg Catechism is simply following the Apostles' Creed, and it will look first at the person of Jesus Christ, and then the work of Jesus Christ, especially His work in accomplishing salvation or accomplishing redemption through the steps of humiliation and the steps of exaltation. And simply following its understanding of the person of Jesus Christ, our catechism begins by looking at the personal name, the personal name that was given upon the incarnation uh, to the eternal Son of God. 
Now, we want to consider this truth and this subject matter this evening underneath the theme of deliverance in the name of Jesus. We'll notice, first of all, the understanding of the name, and then secondly, the work of the name, and then thirdly, the belief in the name. Deliverance, and here we mean deliverance from the guilt of sin, deliverance from the penalty of punishment, deliverance or salvation or redemption is accomplished in the name of Jesus. And there is a certain understanding both in the giving of this name and also in our perception of this name. Now, boys and girls, you have a name. I have a name. And, and most likely, uh, your, your parents gave you your name, uh, your father and your mother. And when I think about the uh, anticipation of me and my wife's own children, uh, numerous hours were spent, especially by my wife and at that time, baby book names were popular, and so you'd buy this massive uh, book, and it would have all sorts of names in it, and it would give kind of the, the meaning of the name and perhaps even some of the background of where your name originated from. And, and certainly some parents give much thought into the name, but oftentimes, as my wife went through that book in anticipation of the arrival of one of our little blessings, she would say, what do you think about this name? I like the way this name sounds. And mothers especially, and fathers also, they, they go through the name. Ah, I like the, the sound of that name, or no, no, I don't like the sound of that name. And maybe they say, well, that name, I, I know somebody by that name, and now, that person was always a thorn in my flesh, so we're not going to name our child that name. Now, maybe there's a little bit more meaning to your name, boys and girls. Maybe you are named after uh, a parent or a grandparent, or maybe your middle name is after uh, a grandparent, and so there is certainly more meaning to that. But for the most part, our names are just given to us because our parents liked the way they sounded. But it's interesting to note that Joseph and Mary did not pick the name for their firstborn son. But rather, God Almighty gave the name that would be given to the eternal Son of God upon the incarnation. Matthew 1 verse 21 records that revelation from God through the angel. And she, that is Mary, shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And then there's this explanation, for he will save his people from their sins. And what a travesty it is, although this subject matter belongs to a later Lord's Day, what a travesty it is that the name of Jesus is so abused by so many in our world used as a filler word, used as an expression of vulgarity, because the name Jesus is the most beautiful name, and it testifies that there is the provision for salvation, not by way of man's work, but by the way of God's work. The very name Jesus literally means He will save, or the Lord will save. And so I would encourage you to burn that into your memory and burn that into your soul. That when you hear the name Jesus, you automatically think, 
The Lord will save his people. The Lord will save his people. And that is the revelation that is given all throughout Scripture. Now we think here of John 20, verse 31. Uh, John there, upon the conclusion of his account of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he acknowledges that many other works Jesus Christ did that are not included in the gospel narrative uh, written by John. But he says in John 20, verse 31, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so the entirety of Scripture is the revelation of the person and of the work that are symbolized by this name Jesus. And so there are in the Old Testament uh, the Joshuas that are foreshadowing, prefiguring the work of Jesus Christ because Joshua and Jesus, although different languages, same name. And this is one of what we might say a, a hermeneutical key. What do we mean by hermeneutics? Hermeneutics are the rules that govern the interpretation of a certain passage. And for you and for me, when we rightly understand something of the name of Jesus and what it symbolizes and signifies that the Lord will save His people from their sins, then when we open up the Bible, no matter where we look, we ought to see the testimony, the revelation of the person and work of the Son of God incarnate. Jesus. His person and His work is woven all throughout the history uh, of redemption. You see, the Bible is not just some vague collection uh, of pithy sayings to get us through the days of our lives. The Bible is the revelation of what God has promised and accomplished in the way of salvation. I well remember just prior to moving uh, to Pella, as we were making plans uh, to make our move and uh, trying to uh, facilitate all the logistics, some of you were very thankfully involved in a very real way, even driving our U-Haul uh, from West Michigan to, to Pella. But I remember leading up to that moment, you know, when we were trying to find a, a rental truck, it seemed like everywhere we turned, we saw U-Haul trucks. Now, I'm pretty sure that there were not any greater number of U-Haul trucks on the road at that time. But you see, that's what was on our mind, among other things. So maybe you have the same thing. I remember making trips here from West Michigan and uh, having somewhat of an interest in farm equipment. It seemed like every other semi-flatbed had a John Deere combine on it. And we'd make the, the trip from West Michigan to Pella, and I'd say to my wife and the kids, Wow, I can't believe how many combines there are on the road. They'd say, well, I, I saw a couple, but I didn't see that many. I saw them everywhere. And the point is, that which is on your mind, you see. And so I want to lovingly and gently ask you, when you read your Bible, what do you see? Do you see Jesus in every section? in every passage, in the history of redemption? I hope you do. I pray you do. I hope you don't just see a list of rules and regulations. I hope you just don't see a testimony of ancient practices of religion. 
or ancient social customs, but that Jesus Christ is on every page. This only comes by way of the illuminating work of the Spirit. An understanding of the name only comes by the Spirit. Within the elect of God, within the Christian, the Holy Spirit illuminates, turns the lights on, spiritually speaking, within one's mind, within one's heart, so that they then understand the significance of this name. You see, the person of Jesus is not just some ethical teacher. Now, Jesus certainly gave teachings concerning ethics, but He's not just an ethical teacher. He's not just just a prophet. There are other major world religions that acknowledge that Jesus was a prophet, but Christianity, as they are blessed by the Spirit, the Christian says, yes, Jesus was a prophet, but He's more than a prophet. He is the one who the prophets all spoke of, and He accomplished the work which the prophets all foretold. You know, Jesus is not just some co-pilot in the path of our life, giving us, you know, a gentle grandfatherly word of advice for when to turn and when not to turn, uh, when to do this and when not to do this. If that's the view that we have of Jesus, we have an immature view of Jesus that falls short of who He is in His person. His name shall be called Jesus. Why? Why? He will save His people from their sins. And again, as I've done before, I readily acknowledge that this is not what many, many, many a person wants to hear in the broader church. I readily acknowledge you can quickly fill an auditorium if you have some other message other than Jesus is the Savior of sinners. But I come back to this in my own mind. His name will be called Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. I want to ask you, as I ask myself, do we understand the importance of His name? Do we understand the revelation of His name? I ask you to reflect, is the name Jesus powerful to your ears? And is it beautiful to your soul? If so, uh, then follow into our second point, the work of the name. He will save, we've already said, is the meaning. He will save His people. He will save His people from their sins. And so the work of Jesus Christ is a saving work, and it is an exclusive work. The name Jesus and the meaning that is packed into that personal name. Now, Christ is His title. Christ is the official title. And in future Lord's Days, we'll look at that. But His, his name, His name signifies what He would accomplish throughout His earthly ministry, especially through the steps of humiliation and exaltation. And the work that Jesus Christ would accomplish is the deliverance, the salvation from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. You, you, you can't really think about Jesus properly apart from the 
grotesque reality of sin. Now, there are many, many a person who want to talk about Jesus and who even want to sing about Jesus and maybe who even want to sing to Jesus. But you'd ask them, well, well, why do you want to sing about Jesus and why do you want to sing to Jesus? And lacking in their answer is any acknowledgement of the power, the penalty, and the presence of sin which He delivers us from. And so then you want to ask them, well, well, tell me, what exactly did Jesus do during His ministry? You know, this would be a good question uh, to ask ourselves and see if we could answer it, uh, to ask maybe uh, our young people and our children in their religious instruction that they receive in the home and in the church and in the school, uh, to ask them perhaps, can you, can you tell me what did Jesus do here on this earth? And then to look at the answer and, and see if at the very essence of the answer is there is this emphasis upon He came to save. And this is the most necessary work. Isaiah 59 verse 2, the Lord says to Israel, your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. I firmly believe based upon what the Scriptures have to reveal that the greatest need that each and every one of us ever has is to have our sins forgiven. And I ask you to search out your own Bibles and see if that is true. Is this mankind's greatest need? Now I know that there are a host of other situations uh, that face us as human beings. And I know that you can l- listen to endless podcasts and programs and news reports and books, and it can talk about this issue and that issue, whether it be a social issue or an environmental issue or a justice issue. And, and many of these are, are, are good things to consider. But at the bottom of it all, at the end of it all, Is our greatest need to develop some alternative form of energy? And again, don't misread me. I'm not saying that that's not a legitimate exercise of those who have the skill sets to explore those areas. But is that my greatest need? Is that what the church ought to spend its time with? Is my greatest need that there would be peace in the Middle East? When I read my Bible and when I consider the revelation that comes forth from the Bible, I have to confess that I believe my greatest need is to have my sins forgiven so that I might be reconciled to God, so that I might have peace with God, that I might enjoy fellowship with Him now and forever. And when a person understands that, then a person understands the work of Jesus Christ. As the prophets foretold it, as the historical narratives unfolded it, and as the epistles proclaimed and explained it, 
And you can think of the exclusivity of the work of Jesus Christ. If we are in agreement that our most pressing need is the forgiveness of our sins, then the question is, who can forgive my sins? And the answer is Jesus Christ alone. I want to stress this tonight because we've said this numerous times, but it's true and it's a powerful reality that we face. We live in a pluralistic society in which more and more the message is that there are many, many ways to find spiritual peace. And the analogy is used of many, many roads or many, many streets leading to one same destination. And there are persons in positions of prominence and influence in the broader Christian community who will pump this message into our minds and into our ears and into the minds and ears of our young people. And they will say from their positions of influence, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian, a Jew, a Muslim. It doesn't matter if you're a Hindu. It doesn't matter if you practice some form of Eastern mysticism. It doesn't matter if you buy into some type of a Native American spirituality, because all roads lead to the great divine being. Now, in contrast to that, think of the simple testimony of the apostles in Acts 4, verse 12, nor is there salvation in any other name. And no other name than Jesus Christ. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now we do not say this in some type of proud arrogance. But we say this based upon truth. There is only one name that can save. There is only one person that can save. And that one name and that one person is the eternal Son of God incarnate, Jesus. And no matter how well-intentioned someone is in their religious exercises, unless they call upon the name of the Lord, they will not be saved. Now that's not bigotry on our part. That's not hate speech on our part. In actuality, that is the most loving thing that we can say to our fellow human beings. There is one name given under heaven by which we must be saved, and that name is Jesus. As it's in our text, 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And you can think of the Lord Jesus Christ himself saying, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now you are, you are compelled, and dear hearer, acknowledge this and, and work this through in your own mind. You are compelled to say one of two things about the Jesus Christ. Either he is the exclusive way of salvation or he is a liar. Because he himself said, no one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus Christ himself clearly proclaimed the exclusivity of salvation found through his person and through his work. And now, of course, we must clarify, 
Jesus Christ is not a liar. He speaks truth. And He is the only way of salvation. Because He is the only one who has accomplished the work of salvation. And so that work of salvation, if properly understood, produces what we consider in our third point, the belief in the name. Salvation from sin, from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, from the presence of sin, comes to those who in true faith accept this Savior. I just want to draw your attention to those words uh, of the Catechism, and and we'll prove them also uh, from Scripture. But in the last part of the answer from question 30, either Jesus is not a perfect Savior, or those who in true faith accept this Savior have in Him all they need for their salvation. Those who in true faith accept this Savior. Now this is not an Arminian free will, self-decision. This is the result of regeneration, the result of sovereign grace. This is what we hear in Isaiah 45, verse 22. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. There has to be a personal exercise of faith, of reliance upon the person of Jesus and upon His work. I would ask you to cross-reference within your Bibles one passage this evening, and that's Mark 10, because I want to try to illustrate the exercise of faith in the person of Jesus Christ uh, as contrasted with just some mere curiosity uh, in these things. And in Mark 10, verse 46 through 52, uh, we have the record uh, of a blind man named Bartimaeus. Verse 46 of Mark 10, now they came to Jericho, and in the they is included Jesus himself along with his disciples. And as they came to Jericho, they went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude. So not just simply the disciples, but many others were there. And some of them were religious experts, the Pharisees. Some perhaps were just there out of curiosity. Some were there just constantly watching, looking for something to catch Jesus in. But notice a great, great multitude were following Jesus. And then by contrast, there's blind Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus would have been known basically for one thing, his blindness. And the result that his blindness would have left him destitute of any meaningful employment. And so his daily provisions depended upon his success at begging for alms. And so he would have placed himself strategically on a main thoroughfare, crying out continually, for the pity of the passerbyers. Notice verse 46, he sat by the road begging. And then the beauty of words in verse 47, and when he, who's the he? Blind Bartimaeus. Blind and begging Bartimaeus. When he heard that it was Jesus. Being blind I've heard it said, heightens your other senses. I can imagine that begging blind Bartimaeus as he sat 
daily by this road would have become very, very attuned to the approaching of passerbyers. But now he heard that this passerbyer was unique. He heard it was Jesus. He heard the Lord saves. He heard the Lord will save his people from their sins. And now the blindness that Bartimaeus had was not a direct result of some personal sin that he had committed, but blindness, along with all physical infirmities, is an indirect result of our fallen condition. So there he sits in a symbolic posture, blind. But he hears Jesus of Nazareth. And what does he begin to do? He begins to cry out and say, Jesus, and again, what echoed, the Lord saves. The Lord will save his people from their sins. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then in verse 49, so Jesus stood still and commanded, begging blind Bartimaeus to be called. Then they called the blind man, saying to him, be of good cheer, rise. He Jesus, the Lord saves, is calling you. You called out to him, now he's calling out to you. He's stopped. He's considering you. He's having pity upon you. And notice the response in verse 50, and throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. So notice the progression. He hears about Jesus. He cries out to Jesus, and then he actually comes to Jesus. This is the exercise of saving faith. It would have benefited blind, begging Bartimaeus nothing if he would have just sat back with curiosity and said, hmm, Jesus is passing by. That's interesting. He's the 4,337th traveler to go down the road today. That wouldn't have profited him anything. It wouldn't have profited him anything if he would have said, oh yeah, that's Jesus from Nazareth. I've heard about him. And I even know some of the Old Testament prophecies about him. I know that the Deliverer is to come from Nazareth. That in and of itself wouldn't have profited begging blind Bartimaeus anything. The prophet came when he was led by the work of the Holy Spirit to cry out, have mercy upon me. And then to actually come to Jesus Christ. There is, on the shores of the Great Lakes of Michigan, although other states share the Great Lakes, but us natives of Michigan, we like to think that we own them all. We call them our Great Lakes. There are, on the shores of Michigan, many, many a lighthouse. Standing perhaps at a port or a harbor, perhaps at a rocky outpost. And you can, if you're a tourist, especially in the summer, uh, you can go along the lake shore and you can see lighthouse after lighthouse. And of course, as tourism does, uh, you can buy all sorts of knickknacks, knickknacks rather, about these lighthouses, maps about where they are, books about how they came into existence. Maybe even little trinkets to put in your home or in your cottage about a lighthouse. And you can go and you can walk down perhaps the piers or perhaps the paths that lead to 
these lighthouses. And you can read the historical uh, placards that are there when the lighthouse was built, uh, who the lightmaster was. But by and large, due to modern navigational improvements, the lighthouses, they don't really serve any function, but they used to. They used to. They used to be a beacon of light to sailors, especially in the night. Now, if you're a native of Michigan, you also are well familiar with the story, or at least you should be well familiar with the story of the Edmund Fitzgerald. In his day, it was the largest freighter that traveled the Great Lakes, carrying loads of iron ore from the shores of Wisconsin around the Great Lakes uh, to the steel industry of Detroit. The Edmund Fitzgerald was the largest, having set sailing records, annual carrying of load records numerous years. But as the song, the Edmund Fitzgerald, goes, one November the cold winds began to blow. And the sailors who were caught in the midst of that storm, they earnestly began to look for the lighthouse at Whitefish Point. It said that they almost made it. They almost made it a few miles short they were. They almost made it. But when you say someone almost made it, that means they didn't make it. The Edmund Fitzgerald sunk. By all accounts, the last radio message that went out from the captain of the Edmund Fitzgerald to the closest ship was this, we are holding our own. After that, no more communication. There's speculation whether the ship took on more water than it could bear, whether it was broken into two, whether it ran aground. The wreck, which is also one of the largest in the Great Lakes, has been discovered. And the Edmund Fitzgerald, that mighty freighter, lies on the bottom of Lake Superior, broken into two. They almost made it. But they didn't make it. And I can't help but wonder over the history of human race, how many person has almost made it. In regards to the name Jesus. How many people were so close to him but never cried out for mercy? How many a person who heard so much about him but never came to him? The narrative of Mark says that there was a multitude of persons around Jesus that day. But only records one begging blind Bartimaeus saying, Jesus, have mercy on me. With pastoral love, I ask you tonight, have you and are you 
crying out from the depths of your soul, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. If so, know beyond all shadow of a doubt that Jesus saves his people from their sins. But if you're not crying out, have mercy upon me, know that the sailors on the Edmund Fitzgerald, they could see the light of the lighthouse on Whitefish Point, but they didn't quite make it there. And their bodies have never been, never been recovered, never been found. They lie somewhere, but it's not in the safe harbor. Don't let that be true of us, that we fall just short, that we know much about the name Jesus, maybe even that we're able to refute those who don't know as much as we do about the name Jesus. Cry out to him, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for providing the clear testimony of who Jesus is and what he has also accomplished. And even as we have heard these words, uh, we ask, Lord, that you would use them to stir up the initial but also the continual exercise of genuine faith that we might obtain salvation for our souls that we might then glorify you and praise you for the work which you have accomplished through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.